Uh, so, so the book uh, is um, not on Stalin's time, but on Stalin's team. And team is an important part of, 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 of the argument I've been making. So it's my Stalin book, my first Stalin book that I've just finished. And you might ask, does the world need another one? Uh, especially, I mean, Kotkins has just come out. I won't even list the ones that are, are, are in, in, uh, in, in process. It seems as if everyone in Soviet history is having a crack at it. So perhaps it's partly just herd instinct. But there was an original stimulus for me to write on this subject, and it is the kind that always makes me write on a subject. It was there were new archives. Uh, that was back in the 1990s, and the archives in question uh, were the uh, von Stalin and the Stalin archive in the what used to be the Central Party archive, now called Rgaspi, which can turned out to contain uh, a wonderful set of correspondence between Stalin and his closest associates, Molotov, Kaganovich, Vodoshilov, Vodjonikidze, Mikoyan, uh, and so on, uh, from the late uh, 1920s and the, uh, into the 1930s. 30s. Now, I had first planned it as a Stalin-Molotov book. Things interfered, and that book didn't get written. But when I came back to the project in the late 2000s, I decided to broaden the cast of characters uh, to the whole group of Stalin's close associates, about a dozen men, or men, uh, not quite equivalent to the Politburo, but close in personnel. Uh, what made me do this was not only the intrinsic interest of the interactions within the ruling group, but also the recognition of something that I found extraordinary, that this group, formed in the second half of the 1920s, managed to survive with some additions in the mid-1930s, some comparatively minor losses in the Great Purges, managed to survive for a full 30 years until 1957, outlasting Stalin himself and forming the core of the astonishingly successful collective leadership that managed the transition when Stalin died. Now, 30 years is a long time for any political group to stay together, let alone in the turbulent and dangerous circumstances of the Soviet Union in the second quarter of the 20th century. I'm usually a social historian, most recently a historian of everyday life, and that means exploring ordinary people's strategies for coping, surviving, and if possible advancing in the peculiar circumstances of Stalin's Russia. Uh, what I did in uh, everyday Stalinism was I was trying to work out the rules of the game for living in this particular society. Now, what I've tried to do in this book on Stalin's team is to apply the same approach uh, but to a different group, not to peasants, not to, uh, to ordinary um, town dwellers, but to the highest of political elites. In other words, to look and see what are the rules of the game within this particular group and what are the coping and survival strategies uh, used at the very top. I didn't immediately conceptualize the political group uh, that Stalin led as a team. That came later as I noticed that these men were meeting regularly, they were apparently bonded as a collective, and they tended to socialize together. And of course, they had uh, a common purpose. First of all, fighting the factions, and uh, secondly, running the country. 
All my group, uh, usually about a dozen men, were political players in their own right, significant in the factional struggles of the 1920s, not as significant, not on Stalin's level, although Molotov was relatively close, but uh, significant players. And then uh, even more as major uh, governmental and party leaders in the, 19, uh, in the 1930s. Uh, Stalin and Molotov, uh, for most of the 1930s, were the generalists on this team. They were the ones without particular interests. They were, uh, in contrast to, say, Vodoshilov, who was the man for the military, Kaganovich, who was usually the man for the railroads, uh, they were the generalists, uh, Stalin uh, on the party side, Molotov on the government side. The group had a sense of themselves as a team. Commander was a term that they used, the Russian term. Uh, and that team was definitely led by Stalin. There is no doubt that this is Stalin's uh, commander. I, and I envisage him within the group as both team captain and as a kind of playing coach. And the reason I introduced the coach element is not only because he had a marked didactic uh, tendency and liked to, uh, uh, to instruct those uh, who were around him, but also because he's the man who decides who can play and who's going to be dropped. He's the man with the power of inclusion and exclusion. The rhetoric had it that all team members were equal, although, according to rhetoric, the, uh, according even to, the, uh, to, to conventions, the captain was conventionally more equal than others. Uh, one could refer to them collectively just as the Politburo. Uh, the trouble is that that is slightly inaccurate because it was Stalin's habit uh, to have the inner group that functioned as the Politburo, including mainly Politburo members, but not all, because some of them had to be dropped for disciplinary purposes, and they sometimes included people who were not Politburo members, uh, but nevertheless uh, were functioning as part of the team. Uh, one could also call them a faction, which is what they were in the, the, the formation formative period of the 1920s, uh, initially Lenin's faction, then Stalin's, uh, forming their identity uh, in those faction fights with the Trotsky and Zinoviefite group. And that form formative period is very important uh, because they're obviously playing themselves off. Uh, they, they, their own sense of themselves is, is, uh, is affected by who it is that they are not. And they are not the cosmopolitan intellectuals. They are not the people who know Europe. Uh, uh, they are not the educated uh, uh, and more upper class uh, types. They, they are none of the above. Uh, they, are, they would put this in, in, uh, in terms that they are the more proletarian. Now, strictly speaking, they are not proletarian, but they are more lower class, less well educated, less cosmopolitan, don't know European languages, didn't spend time in emigration. Uh, so the term faction is, is, uh, is very good uh, when there are other factions, but the thing is that from the early 1930s there are no other factions, so it's not quite clear if, if that remains a useful, um, a useful term. Now, one can call them a gang, and that's what Harry Rigby, who generally I follow in many things, what he did. Uh, that implies that crime is their game, uh, and, of course, you can make an argument for that, but I, I, I stick to the sort of simpler concept that running the country is their game, uh, their main game, uh, w whether or not uh, they, they do it in a criminal manner. So I, I, I think, uh, uh, to, to me, team seems to be uh, is, is a, is a better term than gang, but I, I'm not deeply invested in that. So, you know, if people want to call it a gang, uh, that's um, basically okay with me. 
My original interest in the team was focused on the first half of the 1930s and the question of how the Politburo operated then. This is going back to 1980s work for, for me. In particular, I was interested in the question of what forms of disagreement were possible within the Politburo. What could you disagree about and how? Uh, it arose out of my work uh, on heavy industry back in the 1980s when I noticed that the person, the man who was in charge of heavy industry, that is Sergo Ojonkidze, as soon as he took over that responsibility, he previously had not been concerned with industry uh, in an executive con uh, sense at all, when he took it over, as soon as he took it over, I noticed he became its passionate advocate for the industrial interest in budgetary and other matters uh, inside the Politburo and outside. I also noticed that in terms of Politburo functioning, that was okay. In other words, it was a form of, 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 of uh, it was a form of interest expression uh, that was acceptable. Uh, that Stalin found uh, uh, found natural, and indeed he found its absence unnatural. Uh, if he had, uh, if uh, he noticed a lack of advocacy of the of the area for which a particular team member was responsible, from this team member, uh, he might start joking him about it and saying, you know, why are you not pushing uh, the railroad interest or the agricultural interest or whatever? Now, within the Politburo, that is to say on the team, it was by convention strictly forbidden to take positions based on an ideological factional allegiance. That, that was a, a complete no-no. Uh, it was also not acceptable to argue for a personal interest, uh, but an institutional interest. Uh, as I've, I've just uh, been pointing out, was uh, uh, okay. That institutional interest would be the institution that you were running at, uh, uh, at any given time. Uh, and I was impressed to see that when people change their institutional responsibilities, in other words, when they move, let's say, from industry to railroads, they change their advocacy position too. Uh, Stalin is above institutional interest. Uh, the party is not considered as such. Uh, uh, and it is his, uh, that's very much his manner of running the team and uh, running its meetings uh, in the early 30s. Uh, various people will put, the point of view, put their point of view often uh, and, and they will argue about something. He will tend to sit quietly, sucking on his pipe, and then at the end he will come down with a, with a resolution. Uh, which, you know, which may be, well be regarded as a compromise resolution, but which is responsive to what he has heard. Now, that is not to suggest that on something that isn't, isn't important to him, he will not be, uh, uh, be ramming that through. He will be, of course. Uh, but but there are, uh, not all issues can be issues on which uh, Stalin or any leader has a deep personal uh, engagement. There's evolution in the team's internal dynamics over time. The boundaries of uh, allowable political discussion contract. Uh, in the post-war period, uh, the rest of the team, while paying ever more marked obeisance to Stalin, try with some success to keep large areas of government out of his hands, leaving him to pursue his own special interests. And his special interests uh, involve particularly security matters, uh, and in the uh, late Stalin period, they involve the anti-Semitic campaign. Now, the, the team's uh, assumption of really quite a large sphere of uh, responsibility in the, post, in the late Stalin period is facilitated by Stalin's ever longer absences in the South on vacation. Now, he'd always taken uh, 
a, a considerable uh, vacation down south, where he, uh, leaving the team in charge, and that means until the mid-30s, they're not even direct telephonic con- communication, so it's, 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 uh, it's telegraph and letters. Uh, he does, 1937 is the last year he does that. Uh, after that, uh, he's, he's looking after the purges and then he's looking after the war. So he's not absent again until 1945. But then, from 1945 on, his absences grow ever longer. And uh, the, as I say, when he's absent, the team is running things largely. In 1951-52, over a more or less a year and a half period, he's absent for seven months. Now, that is a very substantial period of time. And if you look at his appointment book in Moscow, his work capacity is down. He's seeing fewer people. He's working fewer days and so on. Uh, So all of that uh, suggests that, uh, um, well, somebody's doing the work and uh, it looks like uh, the team. Okay, uh, so uh, back to the purges uh, and back to the team. Uh, The assumption has often been made uh, that uh, if there was a team... It fell apart in the Great Purges, uh, and I th- uh, never to be reconstituted. And I think that that at first uh, I, I probably thought that might well have happened, but actually my findings uh, seem to contradict that. To be sure, the purges were a terrible experience for the team, although actual team losses were comparatively small. And there I refer you to Rigby's uh, uh, article was Stalin a disloyal patron from 1986 that, but they didn't know that they didn't know they had a ticket uh, to get through and uh, as people all around them were being arrested including their deputies and giving damaging information on them uh, they were all essentially terrorized uh, but they are also so they are potential victims they are people who feel they may become victims they are not the initiated I think it's very much Stalin's show Uh, with the security services, uh, of course, implementing it. Uh, uh, So they're they're, they're potential victims, but they are also perpetrators, uh, which makes it a very interesting uh, angle of of vision. Uh, uh, One of the interesting parts of the book to to write, indeed. now, as I looked at the impact of the purges on the team, I see them in, uh, in, in the aftermath, emerging in 1939-40, uh, trying to make themselves invisible, as I see it. They still are the, st- the team. They're still meeting uh, regularly with Stalin. Uh, nothing has, in a sense, changed. But if you look at Politburo stuff, the dominance of Stalin and, and, and his... Um, he is really dominating the uh, sort of initiation of almost all questions... Uh, the team's efforts are, 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 appear to be concentrated very much on making the institutions for which they were are responsible run again, which means staffing them, you know, after the purges. So you might look at 3940 and think there's been a basic change. These people are no longer the people that they were. They are not anymore uh, going to be exercising the kind of initiative and, and leadership they did before. However, then comes the war. Uh, and uh, the performance of not all of them, but most of them, uh, is back up at their um, at, a, at a high level of of, 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 of of competence, and they are also meeting collectively again uh, in and really discussing things according to the uh, uh, to their reports uh, and the reports of the. Um, of people working for the uh, State Committee of Defense, which is, becomes the main venue of team, uh, of team meetings. Uh, indeed, it was the team 
uh, which set up the state committee, the state defence committee, as far as we can see. In other words, there's that that moment after the German attack. Uh, when uh, Stalin is is, 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 is is deeply upset and also feels, uh, you know, he miscalculated and he feels that he may, it, it looks as if he felt uh, that he may have to pay for that. Uh, and there is a story whose, whose authenticity and detail is questioned, but I think um, that something like this uh, happened, uh, it seems to be confirmed by a number of sources. This is the Mikoyan story of going down to the Dacha uh, and uh, as a group, having decided to set up the State committee, Defense Committee with Stalin in his chair, going down and telling him uh, that they're doing that, and he said that seems like a good idea in a kind of, uh, you know, a, a rather tense voice, and, and they say, and you will be chair, and he says, well, okay, with, uh, according to the Mikoyan story, a look of, of relief. Uh, now, the post-war period is particularly interesting in terms of the team's evolution. Uh, or So anyway, it struck me like this, perhaps because it was a period I knew much less about than the 30s. In the post-war period, this, uh, Stalin picks systematically on one team member after another. He starts with Molotov, who's getting too good a press, who's being talked about as a possible heir. And so he puts Molotov in his place, but then everybody gets, um, gets uh, in, in, in those uh, couple of years, everybody gets uh, rebuked in some public and humiliating way. And uh, indeed, one member, uh, one new recruit to the team, or at least potential recruit, Nikolai Vaznesinsky, uh, is involved in the Leningrad of and is purged, is executed. Uh, at this time, Stalin is showing, and in the late 40s, he's showing every sign of wanting to push out of the team two of its oldest and most senior members, that is Molotov and Mikoyan. There are also intrigues within the team which are encouraged by Stalin uh, and changes involving the emergence of the mid-1930s recruits, Malinkov, Khrushchev, Biri, and Zhdanov, uh, which uh, uh, Stephen Wheatcroft, who's also written about the team, he calls it Team Stalin, uh, he treats it as something like a new team, uh, implicitly in competition with the old team of Molotov, Mika, Jan Kakunovich, Vodoshilov, and so on. Now, I, I can see, you can, you can handle it like that, you can see it like that, but I, I see, I mean, teams change slightly in personnel, they do recruit people, and it seems to me that the latest story that I'm going to tell is more interestingly a, a, a story of one team than of two in competition with each other. Uh, now, the, it's... Uh, in, the post, in, in this period, in the late 40s, with Stalin wanting to drop Molotov and Mikoyan from the team, so he starts saying that they are, uh, he starts dropping the, his a typical kind of hints that maybe they're British spies or whatever, uh, which is, of course, grotesque, but uh, it's the kind of thing that can happen uh, in Soviet politics. And he doesn't want them to come anymore. He doesn't drop them from all their responsibilities. Uh, but he drops them from some of the most senior. And he, above all, he doesn't want them to come to what you might call team practices. They're not meant to come to the Dacha. They're not meant to come to the film showings where, where business is done. But this is where it gets interesting. They do come. They keep on coming. He has instructed his staff not to tell them uh, when they're going to meet at the Dacha and when the next film showing is. But the rest of the team are telling them instead. They are, 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 are leaking this story, uh, the, this information to them. Uh, in a sign, obviously, of Im implicit support. Now, Stalin gets really fed up, but this goes on for some months, and then he gets really fed up and says, no, I'm serious, I don't want them coming. 
Uh, and they, uh, the last incident uh, is, I think, at Stalin's birthday party in November 1952, where they are not invited, but they come. <laughs> and he greets them. But the next day he says, I don't want to see them. You shouldn't have let them come. Uh, that, that's all very bad. Uh, now, in a sense, we can, we, we can talk about the outcome of this uh, struggle, if that's what it is, in two ways. Uh, one is that Stalin tried to get rid of them and didn't succeed. And the other, that he was doing his usual, it didn't succeed because of team opposition, res, uh, passive resistance. The other one is uh, that he was doing his usual long drawn out undermining, uh, which would ultimately have involved in uh, getting rid of them, as in the past Bukharin had got, been got rid of. Uh, that's a perfectly plausible scenario, but it didn't happen because he died. I, uh, seldom has a death been so convenient for uh, a lot of people. Even although, I mean, uh, uh, although, uh, I mean, it would be almost nice to think that they had had, had finally turned on him and got rid of him, but uh, there is uh, no evidence uh, of that. Uh, now, just to go on, um, perhaps I'll come back to the uh, to, to the implications of all this uh, for team identity. But let me go on to the period 1953 to 57. Uh, now that is usually treated in the in the scholarship as a sort of prelude to Khrushchev. You know, one deals with it in terms of reigns, and there's the Stalin reign, and then and then uh, the Khrushchev comes along, and the reforming impulse of the post-Stalin period uh, is attributed to Khrushchev too, and that uh, and both of these assumptions are basically um, not correct. Uh, what I realize as I start to work on it is that uh, it, it's essentially my team, you know, the team that I've, I've, I've been focused on, uh, that, carry, that sets up a government. It sets up a, a new government before Stalin dies, the day before. He's still alive when they have the new government with all the responsibilities uh, allocated, with Molotov and Mikoyan back in their old places, uh, uh, all set to go uh, before, uh, before Stalin dies. And then... Uh, when uh, he does uh, die, they immediately go into action on what turns out to be uh, a rather extensive reform program. And when I say immediately, I mean within days. Uh, the first of the, uh, uh, the the first radical change, of course, is the release of the doctors, the Jewish doctors. Who this, I, I mentioned that the anti-Semitic campaign is Stalin's particular interest. Well, as soon as he's gone, they're released. Now that is Beria who does that. And Beria is in the forefront of these reforms, but he's do it, it, it's, it's a collective decision, as far as I can see. The, the rest are all going along with that. And that's only the first of really radical reforms across the board, which involve uh, releasing uh, uh, large numbers of people from Gulag, looking for better relations with the West, incre uh, inclu uh, increasing um, supply of consumer goods, taking some of the pressure off the peasants. Uh, uh, adjusting the, uh, cut, uh, giving the national republics more uh, more leeway uh, to run their own affairs and and so on. So as I looked at this, uh, and I noticed that the, the team comes in very apprehensively, I suppose, and everybody uh, and from the outside, everybody thinks that when Stalin goes, that everything will collapse, but. That's not what happens. What they come in with a reform program, which they um, 
which essentially they implement systematically and quite impressively. There is one casualty, of course, in the team. The rest of the team turn on Beria after six months and get rid of him. Very convenient because then he can be blamed uh, for all you know, anything that went wrong in the past. But otherwise they stay as a collective leadership uh, implementing this wide-ranging uh, reform, uh, reform program and without major social or political instability. And that's what's so extraordinary. I mean, we, we sort of take it for granted. Okay, this, there was a transition and, uh, and it transited. Uh, but if you think about it and if you look at what the c- contemporary expectations were, this is a remarkable thing. Uh, and I think in the, in the story of the team, uh, it's, uh, it's one of the key uh, moments. Uh, but with this, I'm, I'm getting ahead, with, ahead of myself, so let's get back to Stalin. Uh, first, to clear away a possible misapprehension, uh, my point in focusing on the Stalin team is not to claim that Stalin's power was less than has been supposed. Uh, I think when I went into it, I had an open mind. Was it less or more? I, 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 I wasn't sure. Uh, but as I, as I worked on it, I became very impressed uh, by... Um, the uh, unquestioned by the um, by how great Stalin's authority was with the rest of the team, how unchallenged his preeminence, even when circumstances seemed to call for a challenge, uh, as in June 1941, and that of course led to the question of why. What were the sources of his authority? I mean, his authority with the team. It's a different thing from his authority in the country as a whole. But with the team. Um, it, it appears to me that they respected um, his boldness. Uh, they thought he, 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 he had the nerve to undertake things that none of them uh, would have thought of doing. I mean, they may, of course, from our point of view, be terrible things, but that, I'm trying to give it to you from their point of view. His determination, uh, uh, his, uh, his stubbornness, and also his intelligence. They do see him as the, the, as, uh, as the brightest of them. And actually, uh, as I worked on it, I thought that that's right. Uh, Indeed, he is. (laughs) The brightest and the toughest. Now, in addition, of course, they were scared of him. And that uh, that would normally be put right up front in in, in the question of relations uh, with Stalin uh, and the team. So, and I'm not contesting uh, the notion that they were scared of him. I'm I'm, I'm trying to add uh, something to say that uh, that's not only... Now I'll skip a bit here since we <laughs> we lost something, and and, uh, and and go on to the question the uh, a little bit more detail on the interesting question of the purges, where as I've, I, I said, uh, we have uh, the, the team both as potential victims and as as perpetrators. Uh, now there are uh, most of the team survive. They don't know that they're going to survive, but a few do not. They're not, 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 not the inner, inner circle of the team, but uh, with anything like this, there's always a question about who is actually in it at any given time. Uh, and so is Kosciur, for example, in the Ukraine, is he in it or not? He's, he's a sort of marginal member. Uh, he's a Politburo member, but he's out of Moscow. He's not exactly in the loop. But in, in any case, he is one of those uh, people uh, uh, who, who, could, who is a, a, a team member but peripheral uh, who doesn't uh, survive. But uh, most of them do, but most of them do with their deputies, their secretaries, people all around them uh, being arrested, and uh, they themselves are unable to rescue them. 
Uh, they don't. I, I think it's out of the question that they believe in the literal truth of the accusation of their friends and associates. Uh, but um, I, I think that in normal terms also, as far as their, their subordinates are concerned, uh, they would wish to protect them from arrest because that is one of the purposes of power, that you can get your, uh, you can get your uh, associates off. And in general, of course, they are able to do that. But that's one of the characteristics of the of the purge period, uh, that the power of the team uh, to secure, um, uh, uh, to rescue their, uh, their their clients and and friends and relatives from the NKVD. That power is suspended. They do not have that power to intervene uh, at this time. And uh, Mikoyan actually refers to a, a, an actual ban. Uh, passed a Politburo resolution uh, forbidding its members during the uh, in, in, from 37 on to, to contact the NKVD to release people. Uh, now, whether that existed or not, in practice, one can see that they stopped trying to intercede because it's no good. It's only backfiring uh, on them. Uh, now, one of the interesting things to me is that Stalin doesn't protect his friends, associates, and family either. From the purges, there's uh, in 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 the family of all all the team members. Uh, in sorry, in the uh, uh, in the the the, 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 the immediate world, the entourage of all the team members, uh, there are, is a very high casualty rate. Uh, but that is so in Stalin in, around Stalin as well. And, and of course, the question then arises: Why is that? Uh, you ca it is, insofar as it's commented on at all, it's often attributed to Stalin's rampant suspicion and bloody-mindedness. Uh, and this, 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 may be, this, this may well be uh, a part of it, but I think also is the question of his relations with the team. Uh, if, um, if the team is not going to be allowed to save people, which they very much... Uh, they're very upset about and find very hard to deal with. I think uh, that it's it's uh, that Stalin is is assuming that uh, basically he doesn't do it uh, either. Otherwise, the morale uh, um, the morale consequences in the team will be too great. Now, that's one of the hypotheses one can't prove, uh, but uh, that seems to me to be. Um, uh, to be a reasonable one. If you look at Stalin's behavior when his son, Yakov, was fell prisoner of war in the Second World War, uh, became a prisoner of the Germans, Stalin's reaction there is he, do, he, will not, he doesn't want to do a deal to get him out. And the uh, explanation often offered is that he didn't like his son and he was annoyed with him and so on and so forth. Well, that, that may all be true, uh, but I think we should also consider the possibility that the statement he actually made about it has a certain... Not that he always told the truth by any means, but on this particular statement, uh, he said other people can't get their sons out, so I'm not going to do it either. I think that's the same kind of um, approach that he, he, he brought to the saving of close associates uh, during the purges. Uh, which reminds us that whether we regard this as, as a team or whether we regard it as a criminal gang or whatever, but even within a criminal gang there are certain codes of honor that are more, uh, usually observed within the, in the team, and I would suggest this as, uh, as one of them. Now, this brings me to the question of sources. Uh, we have the Stalin uh, archive, which uh, I mentioned already is giving the give and take between Stalin and the team, uh, but it, um, the personal element in their relations stops being visible, visible mainly in that source uh, for after the purges. 
Uh, now, a hugely important set of sources, therefore, are the memoirs and interviews from team members and their wives and children uh, left subsequently, uh, and we have lots of them. Now, of course, uh, these uh, sources have, uh, have their, they are all advocacy sources, and uh, to a degree uh, sometimes written for sensational purposes or, or whatever. Uh, and sometimes it's suggested that we should be uh, we shouldn't use them at all. I think, uh, I, but uh, my own sort of attitude to, I, I'm not against banning any type of source. I think the question, I, I think the uh, that every source has its own inbuilt bias biases, and the question is is a critical use of them. Now, in this case, uh, the, 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 the memoirs from the family are of particular interest because there's a, a strong Soviet convention that if you belong to the family of a leading politician or of a leading intelligentsia figure, whoever got into trouble, and that, that, that is a large group, then somebody in the family has to tend the flame of the reputation. Somebody is in charge of, uh, of, of, of defending the interest of the, of the family member. Now, that is very much... Um, what is being done by the relatives of, of team members, that is, Beria's son, Malinkov's son, Mikoyan's two sons, uh, and so on. And, but there is uh, one glaring um, exception to that rule, uh, that is uh, the memoirs of, of Stalin's daughter. Stalin's daughter wrote memoirs which are not in this Soviet convention of, 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 of prevent, presenting your father in, in, in the best light, and uh, if necessary, rehabilitating them. And for her departure from this convention, uh, Sergo Beria, the, 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 the son of Beria, who was uh, an old boyfriend of hers, actually, uh, never forgave her, basically said that this, uh, this, is, this is not decent behavior, not to, uh, uh, on her part. And he and his mother cut off relations with her. Now, your sources always try to tell your story, or rather tell you what story to tell, uh, and uh, in particular with regard to memoirs, they're all lobbyists. Uh, memoirists are all lobbyists uh, bending your ear for their man and his policy. And writing the book, I realized how advantaged in the eyes of history are those who left really detailed accounts. Uh, I mean, in other words, the more, the more you left of your version of the story, either in your own hand or through an interview or through a, a child, a child's memoir, uh, the better off you are. Think of Rushoff and Mikoyan. They are the ones with the... Uh, with, with multiple sources and all of us historians are quoting them like mad because you know there they are whereas other people like Andreev uh, who's uh, to us seems a very minor player but I think it's partly because he didn't have so active a, uh, uh, he didn't leave a so active a, an advocate uh, uh, among his children uh, 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 so the other people are, are disadvantaged. Kaganovich is another one, disadvantaged, by the way. He has a loyal daughter who looks after him in old age, but she does not... Um, uh, she doesn't write a memoir justifying her father. Perhaps she didn't feel... I mean, this may not have been the way she felt about it, but in any case, she didn't leave that. Uh, he himself, he was interviewed... Uh, the man called Felix Chuev interviewed Molotov at length from the 1970s, got very useful and interesting material from him and a great amount of it. He also interviewed Kaganovich, but Kaganovich was so old by the time this interview came, uh, came forward, so old and so angry that really not a whole lot comes out of that. He keeps saying, it's a lie, it's a lie, and uh, you, don't, you don't get anywhere, uh, you don't get too far. 
Beery and Malenkov are both left a son who tells the story from their point of view, which is very different from anybody else's uh, version. Now, in terms of look of the sources that we, uh, we have, uh, there's a set of sources which are terribly useful, but at the t- same time quite uh, problematic. And these are the public slanging matches between the members of the team about responsibility for what went wrong in the Stalin period. Now, this starts, uh, there, there are a series of them after Stalin's death. First of all, uh, in the period between Beria's arrest in the middle of 1953 and his execution in December, that's, there's, uh, th- th- that's the first round of discussion about who was responsible. Of course, the effort on, 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 uh, from the whole team is to put everything on Beria. Uh, that, that is possible. Uh, then you have uh, round two is the de-Stalinization discussion, uh, when, which again is also, a, a, it's not only a discussion of Stalin's responsibility, but of who shared that responsibility and who shared it most. Uh, and then again in 1957. Uh, 1957 is when the so-called anti-party group uh, is um, uh, is, is pushed out of the leadership by Khrushchev, who, who becomes the dominant person. And that is essentially the, mo- the, the, the moment of the breakup of the team, because the anti-party group is, uh, in effect, it's the team except for Khrushchev. Now, uh, not every... Uh, uh, it, it was uh, the, the majority opinion in, within the Politburo, within the team, is... Uh, uh, is for censure of Khrushchev for, for non-collegiality, for taking too many initiatives on his own. But he managed to, to turn the occasion around, uh, defeat uh, in, the, in the Central Committee, defeat the, um, the Politburo majority, but also, more strikingly, to turn it into yet another discussion of responsibility for Stalin's crimes, uh, point, pointing, of course, uh, to others than him, um, himself. Now, one of the, 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 the reasons that these sources are, are interesting, but from my point of view in particular problematic, is that the last thing that anybody in these discussions wants to emphasize is that there was a functioning team, that there was anything collective going on, because they are all going after each other, basically. Uh, and in pati- nobody wants to say they ever worked with Beria, although obviously they all did. Uh, everybody over, uh, essentially just says they hated him from the beginning. Uh, and uh, so we, we and we don't have a, the kind of sort. There, there are not occasions which, which are, which encourage the team to remember themselves as a team. Which I think is one of the reasons it's not uh, as visible a historical phenomenon as one might have expected it to be. Now, when I told one historian friend of mine what I was doing, working on the Stalin team, he said scorpions in a bottle. Uh, in other words, uh, that, that, that it's the antagonisms between these associates of Stalin that is more notable than their, uh, their, their, um, their collectivity. And I agree about the antagonisms, but I, it's, it's a question of which, which, which thing is in our mind. We know about the antagonisms. What we know much less about is what must have been the cooperation, or at any rate, uh, I, it's... it's, it's it is not clear to me how you could have had that successful transition if there were not some tradition of working together uh, and, if, for that matter, if there were not uh, some sense of the, uh, of the program that one would, uh, one would want to introduce uh, without Stalin. Uh, now, in terms of how the, um, 
relationships with the team, uh, within the team uh, change over time. That scorpions in a bottle is particularly true of the post-war period. Uh, it, it, when we, if we go to the beginning of the 1930s, there is a much more friendly, there's much more friendly socialization, uh, and that is socialization involving families. Uh, and there are, there are several people who, um, or Johnny Kiggs are notably, uh, who clearly has a talent for friendship and who, who sort of acts as a cement. Now, he, uh, after he, he commits suicide at, at the beginning of 1937, after a conflict with Stalin, uh, and that is the beginning of, of a, major, uh, a major change. The convention emerges in the course of the 1930s that team members shouldn't get too close to each other or socialize too much without Stalin's presence. Uh, in the 1940s, one gets more strongly Stalin's habit of fermenting competition and ill will uh, between his associates. But at the same time, uh, one shouldn't... Uh, that, that's not the only thing going on with Stalin and the team in the post-war period because he is basically... Uh, a lonely man who relies on them for, uh, for companionship. Uh, it's not anymore the kind of meeting with the wives and children at the dacha that it had been at the beginning of the 30s. It is just the men meeting, and they are meeting in those terrible dinners that Gilas describes, uh, and uh, Hushov also, those terrible enforced dinners that start late at night and they go on into the early hours in the morning and everyone has to drink too much and Stalin insists that they drink too much and this is practically every night and then you have to go to work in the morning. Uh, a, a nightmare and, uh, and, and very striking, a, a, a strikingly appalling kind of occasion uh, but it seems to me a clear indication that Stalin needed companionship and the people he turned to were the old associates, in other words, uh, the team. At the end of the 1940s, with Stalin trying to get Molotov and Mikoyan off the team, uh, there's what I see as a revival of team solidarity, but in a different way this time, because it's a sort of solidarity. It's, it's it conceptually now a team without Stalin, not against Stalin, but it's a collective dealing with the difficult old man uh, that is developing. Uh, it's, it's, it's got a semi-clandestine uh, aspect to it. Uh, now, after Stalin dies, uh, the team led by Khrushchev and Malenkov makes a conscious effort to get closer, including socially. And one has the strange uh, description uh, from that Sergei Khrushchev gives the son, uh, Khrushchev's son, of how Khrushchev uh, in 1953-54 uh, uh, would uh, organize family walks with the Khrushchev and Malenkov family, with Khrushchev and Malenkov in the front, and then their wives following, and then the grown-up children behind. And they would parade through um, Moscow streets um, near Granonsko, um, where, where they're living in, uh, and, and uh, apparently unrecognized, very strange. But it was a, 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 an effort, uh, clearly, to introduce uh, a, a greater socialization. But it doesn't fully work, and it falls apart entirely with the break between Khrushchev and Mikoyan, on the one hand, and the anti-party group on the other. After 1957, after the break, after the end of the team, everyone hates everybody else. Uh, and uh, there's minimal contact, except in some cases through the children who've grown up uh, together. And I actually finished my book with, a, with a, a survey of their funerals and who went to them. You know, go, who goes to funerals are terribly important in Soviet uh, case, and, and virtually nobody went to anybody else's funeral. <laughs> Uh, even if they were still alive. Um, now, 
Now, the team's wives and children are part of my story, but I don't know that I should tell this uh, in too much detail. I'll just say that of all the wives, the wives have a, I mean, there are uh, cohorts of wives. There are first wives and then there are second wives. First wives are usually old Bolsheviks, second wives are not. Uh, 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 second wives have intelligence, their connections, they're often sort of arty or else they're, stu- they're, they're, they're studying, they're at the Institute of Red Professors or whatever, like uh, among uh, Stalin's second wife being one of them. Uh, now those old Bolshevik wives and even some of the student ones, they, uh, they, they change over time, I guess like the rest of us, and become what Svetlana and Aleluyeva dismissively called Soviet ladies, uh, a bit overweight, uh, working somewhere like the Lenin Museum uh, as, as she puts it, visual aids on Soviet history. <laughs> With one exception, they keep out of politics, and that exception is Molotov's wife, Polina Zimchuzhina, who has a special status among the wives, but pays for it by being arrested as a Zionist. She's an old Bolshevik, but arrested as a Zionist in 1949 and exiled until Stalin's death, while Molotov, her husband, stays on the team. They were divorced on Stalin's instructions. Uh, she was released only after Stalin's death, within a few days, by, by Beria, who presents her, uh, brings her as a kind of present to Molotov, who was a bit taken aback to have her handed over in this, in this way. Uh, and then, I mean, what is extraordinary is that they then lived happily, happily ever after uh, with never a word of reproach to Stalin that we know about. Now, she was not the only wife of a serving Politburo member to be arrested, by the way. Kalinin's wife was too, and uh, Andreev's wife, though not uh, arrested, uh, uh, lost her job in the anti-Semitic uh, campaign of the late 40s. There were rumors about Vratashilov's wife, also Jewish. There are very colorful rumors that they came to arrest his wife, uh, but that the old military man comes with his saber and, and, and uh, prevents the NKVD men coming through. I, this seems to be pure. Pure, uh, I mean, pure invention, but rather a nice one, I think. Now, as for the children, I became interested in them uh, because, partly because so many of them wrote memoirs, uh, and I, I, I wanted to understand uh, the, the, them from the point of view uh, in order to read these memoirs well. But then I decided that they were actually important in my story in their own right, because as they come to adulthood, which is mainly in the 1940s, uh, and they, they, go to, they, they get a higher education. And where do they get it? What kind of thing do they go into? They are not looking to go into politics. With only, only, there's only one case, uh, that's Zhdanov's son, who goes and it seems to be against his father's advice, and perhaps also unwillingly. It's because Stalin more or less insists. But in general, that is not the, t- the typical pattern. Uh, they stay away from politics like the plague. And uh, there's one group that goes into the military. Well, I mean, naturally, a large number of the men go into the military because of the war, uh, and and many of them stay in professionally. But otherwise, what do they do? They go uh, and uh, into the uh, into humanities. Uh, they they study history. They study philology. Uh, or they go into architecture. Uh, all these very intelligentsia things. In other words, kind of professions characteristic of intelligentsia. Uh, and I th- uh, uh, and I think in most cases they clearly acquire an identification of themselves as members of intelligentsia. Now that is not to say that other members of intelligentsia would so recognise them, but but I th- I, uh, but their attitudes I think are 
uh, are of that kind. It's very interesting to see the in the Malinkoff uh, and the Beria sons' memoirs. They're both trying to rehabilitate their fathers. They're both trying to say that the fathers have been misunderstood the fathers whose repute has, 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 has sunk uh, very low. And what they both say is that they were, they were really very... Uh, into, uh, they, they, were, they were really members of the intelligentsia. That was the people they liked to mix with. Their, their, their chosen friends were architects and musicians and, 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 uh, and, and doctors of medicine and researchers of, of various kinds. Both of them make this claim extremely strongly. Uh, and while I think the other members of the team would not make this claim for their fathers, uh, they will make, uh, I mean, the, uh, the team children, they will make uh, this claim for themselves. And if you think about it, um, this has got to have consequences in that by this time the team, so surrounded by security details and so on, they, their ability to, to meet anybody in the outside world is by this time very limited, except the people immediately they, they meet with. Uh, but they do meet with their children. And their children are, are in a sense, their, their, their sounding board for what's outside there in the world. I was quite struck by the picture after, this is, of course, of them in retirement, uh, but uh, the, the realization that half of the, um, of the surviving members that are, are still in Moscow half of the team members are being regularly dragged to concerts at the conservatorium of very intelligence or activity uh, by their children. Uh, anyway, I could say more about that, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. <coughs> Now, I've already said that uh, I see one of the team's big uh, achievements, uh, the successful transition of 1953 and the reforming collective leadership of the next three to four years. As um, I, I see this as one of their great achievements. And I'm very struck by the fact, uh, just to repeat what I already said, uh, that they are collectively introducing... Uh, with uh, very quickly a wide-ranging reform program. Now, it is hard for me to imagine that this could be done without some kind of prior agreement of some kind, even implicit, of what was needed. Uh, and I think that the, uh, the Golitsky and Livnuk's research in Cold Peace, which is, this is the most... Um, uh, uh, the deepest research on high politics of, the, of this period, uh, they don't go that far. They don't go so far as to say there's an implicit reform program that, that, that is sort of collectively agreed. But they do say that there is, uh, is a general recognition among the, among the group of Stalin's associates that, reform, that Stalin is a block to a, a, a range of reforms which would in principle be necessary or would be, uh, would be desirable. So I don't know that we will ever be able to know exactly what, um, what form of implicit understanding developed, but I, I, I can't see any other way to explain that very rapid embarking on, uh, on a coherent reform program, a coherent uh, and quickly implemented reform program. I can't see how, how it would happen. Now, finally, I'd assumed, like most other people, uh, that Rushoff's attempt at something like personal dictatorship from uh, 1957 was a natural rever reversion to the def default position of Soviet politics, in other words, a personal rule uh, model. But then I noticed how much this assumption of personal rule on Rushoff's part, how much it annoyed the others uh, in the leadership, uh, how, how, how irritated his colleagues uh, were with him, 
And uh, it, I was struck by the fact that they didn't seem to find it natural at all that he was claiming. Now, uh, perhaps they didn't find it natural that he, rather than somebody else, claimed it, but it looks to me as if uh, there's a certain sense that it is not necessarily the natural position. Khrushchev was bitterly criticized for non-collegiality in 1957 by those other team members who were later stigmatized as the anti-party group. But then, in 1964, he was criticized on exactly the same grounds, and this time successfully, uh, by uh, Brezhnev and his people. And Brezhnev comes in with what he calls, uh, he calls again, a collective leadership. Uh, and that has been regarded with great skepticism uh, by historians. But uh, recent work, uh, in particular from Susanna Schattenberg, uh, starts to look as if um, there's a top man under Brezhnev, uh, but there also seems to be, I mean, he's also consulting regularly with a team which he treats as a team uh, which shares in the decision-making. Now, Western Sovietologists have always been very wary of acknowledging any kind of diffusion of power away from the central leader, especially, of course, Stalin. And this is partly because Soviet claims about such diffusion put in terms of democracy, focused on institutions like the Party Central Committee and the Supreme Soviet, uh, were self-serving and unconvincing. But maybe if we reformulate the question, it, it, it'll look a bit different, looking not at formal institutions, but at informal institutions around the leader. Uh, and then the, the deep, in particular, the deeply embedded practice of a leader working with a regularly meeting term of a, a team of associates, most holding top party and government jobs, in which the convention prevails that the leader is only uh, primus inter pares, one... Uh, uh, um, uh, one of a group, uh, although admittedly uh, the greater, uh, in which this convention was to a greater or lesser degree respected. Now, Lenin and Brezhnev, I think, both clearly had worked with such teams. That was, uh, that, that's a model that seems fairly easy to apply to both of them. Khrushchev unwillingly put up with one from 1957 to 64. And I've argued in this paper, uh, Stalin had such a team too, Moreover, a remarkably stable one as far as membership was concerned, though its functioning and importance uh, changed over time. So I'd like to leave you with this thought uh, that the default position of Soviet high politics over 74 years involved not just a leader but also a leadership team. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Um, uh, before opening the floor for questions, I'm sure I see some, some of my colleagues here and some, some of my students, actually, from the class on, on Soviet history in the audience. I have to fulfill my duties uh, and uh, to mention two things, that we are distributing promotional flyers for Professor Fitzpatrick's new book on Stalin's team, and uh, there's a Twitter hashtag Hash LSC Stalin. What would have Stalin said to that if he heard me? Um, um, using my chairman's credentials, I would start by kicking off one question. Uh, Klimnyuk and Gorlitsky in particular hint at something that uh, Stalin's team learned from the experience of the Great Terror, from the purges, and they learned above all to support each other much more 
than they could have done without the great terror. So can we speak about the team not only aging and becoming more isolated, but actually learning from, uh, from, from the experience with the, the difficult old man? Well, uh, yeah, that, that's an, that is an interesting question. I, I think that from uh, what they learn from the purges is, is, is uh, I, th- I think, is a, a very strong uh, wish that nothing like that uh, would, would happen again. Uh, and uh, uh, something like a feeling that they'd be, they'd be better hanging together than, than hanging separately. Uh, now, whether they... Uh, you know, it, it's not my sense that, the, the, that those people, the, the, the peripheral members of the, purge, of, the, of the team who perished in the purges, perished because of denunciation by other members of the team. Portishire, for example. I don't, I don't see that that is the case. So I don't... I wouldn't interpret it exactly that they, des- they decided they'd better not denounce each other. Uh, but, but that, 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 that they felt uh, they were aware of the possibilities uh, of, of uh, what would happen if they didn't hang together, I think, certainly. But I, I, I don't know. You know, the, the Leningrad affair is closer than the purges. So I don't know that that's not... I wouldn't think that was foremost in their mind, actually. I think I'd be inclined to say that the Leningrad affair is foremost in their mind. Okay, we have several hands. There was a lady on the back and then a gentleman in front of her, maybe. This, this side. Did you want to? Okay. Please pass the back to, to the center. Thank you. Um, I was really interested in what you said about uh, Stalin's um, time in the South. And I wonder, I mean, you've now looked at all these documents. Um, how, uh, are there... Is there political decision-making happening in the South? Um, Is there a difference in the kind of decisions that are made when there's a retreat to the Black Sea? Um, Is there more socializing there? Is it a retreat from politics? Right. Maybe we'll take uh, uh, you, please, yeah. Take two questions and then two more. Um, Stalin seems to be coming become more reckless in the last two or three years of his life. I've just been reading the book on the doctor's plot. The thing that comes through on that is that there seems to be engineering this huge conspiracy supposedly going on between the doctors who were being manipulated by the US and the Britain and they the book shows this final charge sheet which was a draft charge sheet which was going to be done uh, for the doctors and they had established this alleged connection between the US and the doctors who were going to poison Stalin and as a prelude to World War 3 and that you know the <coughs> what one biographer has called the magnates, Molotov and so on, they would be eliminated in show trials. Do you think it's conceivable that Stalin really was seriously considering, you know, having this inevitable war that he always thought there'd been this inevitable war between capitalism and socialism? Or is it just a fantasy? 
Thanks. Don't take too many because I'll forget. No, 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 two, and then you you will answer, and then we'll move. But to we others. got two, right? We got two. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let me. Uh, the first one about decision making when it's in the south is a really good question, but also really difficult to uh, to answer. Uh, it, of course, it's not the question that he's not handling any business. He's following the security. He's getting stuff sent down to him, large amounts of stuff. He's a prodigious reader of stuff, even even then. Uh, so the things that he's following that are really important to him, like security things, and uh, 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 he continues to follow. Uh, it would be extremely. I have not done the kind of study that would enable me to say. Uh, when he's away, I see policy in certain other areas. I see them getting through certain kinds of things that he's a barrier to. I, ha- I, I can't say that that's the case. It could be, but it, 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 it's, uh, it, it would be something that would be wonderful to work on, but, but I haven't done it. Uh, now, as to the, um, the recklessness of the last year's The Doctor's Plot, yes. I mean, this is an fa- absolutely fascinating period. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, departure in my mind, the anti-Semitic campaign. It's the more extraordinary because it seems to have so little support within the team. They, uh, it's, it's Stalin's show. Uh, they are not involved in it. They don't like it. Apart from anything else, half of them have Jewish wives. They, uh, there's an implicit threat there. Uh, as to what Stalin's ultimate plans were, it would be good if we knew... <laughs> But, uh, I mean, we don't, because, uh, among other things, uh, you look at, this, uh, at the Stalin archive and anything to do with the anti-Semitic campaign is absent. It's, uh, I mean, somebody's gone through and taken stuff out, maybe more than... Uh, it's not the only subject where, where there's been a certain amount of archival purging, but it's one of them. Uh, as, to, but it, as to what I would see plausible as, as a long-term plan... Uh, war with the West, I, 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 I don't see that. That hasn't particularly come through to me as his, his intention, but, but that he was intending uh, more actions against the Jews. At first, I, I, before I start this book, I was quite sceptical about that, partly because there is no archival support for the notion of deportation of the Jews. Uh, which, uh, but that he was intending uh, to develop it further, I, I, I would consider at least possible that he was planning uh, to put another purge in which basically the team as a whole would go, I also consider possible. I'm struck by the fact that after all those very long absences in 1951-52, he comes back in February 52 and he doesn't stir again. He doesn't go away. Uh, I, I mean, his health is no better. Uh, his need for rest is presumably no better, but he stays in Moscow, and I presume it's because he's got business to do. <laughs> and that business doesn't bode well for his, uh, either for the Jews or for his associates. Okay, next round of question, Vaseline, and then to this side. Uh, let's start with Vaseline. Uh, in, in terms of um, your reading of the dynamics within Stalin's team, uh, how can one explain the fact that it was Khrushchev who emerged as the top leader? To me, that still remains a puzzle. Uh, why was it Khrushchev? I can see some institutional arguments for that, the fact that he was head of the party apparatus. Mm-hmm. But what I'm particularly interested is your insight into the dynamics of, of Stalin's team and whether there was something within that dynamics that enabled Khrushchev rather than anyone else to emerge as the top leader. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, going back to the sources of authority that Stalin had in relation to his team, I can see that Khrushchev uh, could potentially uh, uh, have uh, uh, enjoyed support on some of those grounds. Mm-hmm. He was certainly bold. Um, he was um, determined. He was stubborn. But then, on the other hand, he was not particularly intelligent, or at least he wasn't recognized oh. by his. <laughs> at, at least he was not recognized by his colleagues as being particularly intelligent. Though uh, I think, in terms of natural intelligence, he was clearly uh, very gifted, uh, and they were perhaps not afraid of him. So, in terms of the personal dynamics, why do you think it was crucial that, that emerged on top? Mm-hmm. Thank you, excellent. And there's a gentleman on the fourth row. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll, we'll turn to you in the next round. Could Please. I ask, um, what was the relationship between uh, the team that you've described and the security services? Was that a quite mm-hmm. separate relationship mm-hmm. that Hallen, Stalin had with the team that you've described and the relationship <laughs> that he had with the security services? And, and of course, the overlap there is in Beria. What, did Beria have a special position within the team? And then finally, can you see a similar Team Putin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, let me take uh, Khrushchev first. Uh, why Khrushchev emerges? Uh, I don't think it's because he looks like the Stalin. He looks as if he's got the Stalin qualities to the others. I think uh, that the only person who thinks he's got those qualities initially is Khrushchev. And this is one of the sources of his strength that they don't realize. Uh, but as I looked at it, I was struck by the fact that only two people seem to act, uh, that, that the, the, most of the team seems to be happy with the notion of collective leadership. Two people are not. Beria is not. He sees himself as a, as a potential leader, and Khrushchev is not. Now, everyone sees that Beria is a threat, if only because he's got the dossiers on them. And, I mean, Beria is, 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 is extremely, he's so active, he's so frenetically active in those first months, that it must have been quite frightening to, <laughs> to everybody. Uh, it's, if, if you look, look at, uh, if one looks at um, Khrushchev's dis- description of his dealing with Beria the day before he, uh, he was arrested, uh, and uh, he, he, he outsmarts him. Uh, Beria, it doesn't occur to Beria that he could be cunning enough to, to, to sort of out, uh, um, outmaneuver him. And that, I think, uh, is, is probably common to the rest of the group. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Molotov... Molotov is, by the way, one of those people who very definitely doesn't want the top job. Mm. Uh, he's the natural for it. The letters are coming in from all over saying, uh, you know, Molotov, you must lead us. Uh, and he just does... He, every, every aspect of his behaviour indicates uh, a preference for working with a, a team. Uh, in, I mean, he wants to be influential with it in team. But he doesn't want to be the top person. He just doesn't want to. And Malikov, as far as I can see, doesn't either. He's quite happy. He's used to the situation of working with Stalin. And he, he comes to present things to the team the way he used to present things to Stalin, I think. You know, in other words, he, he operates as before. But Rushoff is the man who privately sees himself as the man, you know. And uh, 
uh, uh, the others underestimate him, and uh, uh, so he emerges. I don't. By the way, I'm, I'm on, on the question of popularity. I, I I don't know quite how this fits in, but I'm quite struck. I've read a lot of the of the sort of letters of the, of the, of the opinion so, surveys of public opinion, which start to be quite important at this time. And I'm struck by Khrushchev's lack of person of popularity, mm-hmm. not just in the 53-54 period when people don't know who he is, uh, but when they do know. Uh, <laughs> and don't really like what... Uh, it's it, it, it a very bad press. He gets sick uh, um, throughout. Now, the question of team and security services, uh, the team's direct contact with... Uh, it's Stalin who has that contact, and it's, it's one of his prerogatives. And he certainly would not like people... Uh, now, there are times when somebody is working with him on a particular thing, like Koganovich on the, uh, in, in, in the mid-30s uh, is having a lot to do with, uh, with, the prom- with Yuzhov and the promotion of Yuzhov. Uh, but that's not the typical situation. The typical situation is that Stalin is keeping that connection. Now, how, how the barrier fits in is, um, is indeed a puzzle, and it isn't made any easier to understand by the fact that everybody who writes about Beria is dumping on him, basically. Uh, the Beria is not in the late Stalin period directly in charge of the security services. That it's always spoken as if he nevertheless retained important intelligence uh, connections, as if he ha- uh, his son claims he had, with Stalin's permission, his own, as it were, private intelligence service. I don't know of any confirmation of that. Uh, I find it puzzling because he's he's not he's he's out of the loop. Uh, uh, I I even wonder I mean I just don't know whether he really is or really isn't afterwards of course everybody I mean from 53 everybody says Beria continued they speak as if Beria had run the security services up to the Stalin's death on the other hand they also speak as if he had run them throughout the great purges when in fact he only comes in when the purges are in the winding down phase so I think that's one of the issues where uh, clarity is very hard to find. Of course, there is no von Birria. You know, we don't have a Birria archive to work on where uh, uh, we have least of all materials on him. I heard they burnt all the sacks that Birria kept in his uh, office with the, all the compromat, all the compromising materials on his colleagues. <coughs> in fact, I've seen the documents. It shows that. Anyway, um, next round, uh, we have a number of people, uh, yes, down there. I mean, maybe two along this, yes. F- f- first, first, the young man. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, how was Beria chosen, like, by the team? I assume they, like, picked him out through internal discussion. And why also? Was it simply just because he seemed to be the biggest threat and he was clearly the most ambitious during the period of collective leadership or were there other motives? Why was he chosen in the first place for leadership or why was he chosen to be... To be scapegoated in the end. Sorry. Ah, okay. Okay. Could you pass the mic then to the middle of... of Um, can Can I just ask you to say something about the workings of the team and... Um, and if possible, any of their individual roles in the run-up to and the possible fallout from the assassination of Trotsky in the summer of 1940. Okay, enough for this round. Okay, two questions. Right, why was Beery scapegoated? Um, 
Well, I think what you just said about the compromise, in other words, he is, uh, he, he, uh, he is believed, and evidently it is the case, to have uh, the dirt on uh, a lot of his... Uh, um, I think Malenkov has some dirt too, but in any case, he is seen to be the main person who has dirt, and uh, therefore uh, he, is, uh, the, the, uh, he represents a risk to the others. But I don't think it's only that. I think that in this reform effort... He goes so much, he's, he's, he's so much more active than anybody else. He's running around completely frenetically, uh, try, uh, reforming things at, at, at the speed of light, um, you know, sending out instructions to the, to, 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 to the Republican governments to, um, uh, you know, to remove all Russians from the NKVD leadership in Latvia by tomorrow, you know, and they come back and they, this is archival, they come back and say, but... But if we, if we remove all the Russians, there will be so many empty posts that we haven't got enough Latvians on whom we don't have serious compromising material. And Pierre says, appoint them anyway, uh, and by tomorrow. Uh, you know, they're, they're, on the one hand, he's very clearly taking the leadership role, as he did from the moment of Stalin's death. All the accounts of other people present, uh, at, 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 or rather in the period of when he's uh, start after the stroke, uh, the, the, the days before he dies, Pierre is very... Uh, much conveying to the others that he is the new boss, that he's going off to run things. Uh, as Mikoyan says, when, as he saw him rush off the moment Stalin dies, uh, I felt as if he'd gone to take power. Uh, and so I think that uh, is why they scapegoat him. On the question of Trotsky and the assassination, yes, I was indeed interested uh, on, on, uh, uh, about that question and whether, uh, in, in, whether there's any team involvement. And, and what the team's attitude was. Because I was struck on, on the, by the fact that on certain matters, such as the anti-Semitic campaign, the team seems to be going along really quite reluctantly, and I wondered about Trotsky. Couldn't find any evidence that that was so. Uh, in other words, I couldn't find any evidence of, of team dissension or doubt about that. Beria is obviously involved. I mean, that, that he is involved by virtue. He is still... Uh, uh, running the security services at that point, and uh, and he is directly involved in the planning. Uh, but as far as I could tell, uh, it is not a thing that the team members like to dwell on. Uh, the question of uh, of whether uh, Trotsky should have been assassinated, but I think that there uh, appears to me to be a, a, a general sense that. Uh, uh, that he was a threat to them uh, and to the international communist movement. There's that interesting exchange in the Molotov uh, uh, interviews with Churyev in which uh, Churyev raises this question. Well, what he says is, could uh, Trotsky have been executed in 1927? And Molotov says, uh, no, not then, it would, because it would have been a pit, no, it would have been a, a stain, on the, would have been seen as a stain on the party, but implicitly... I, I mean, the way I read that, he, he thinks it's a, perfectly, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, a necessary thing to do, but just you couldn't have done it then. Mm. Uh, so I, I assume that he, at any rate, is fully behind it. Okay. I've got one All question. right, gentlemen. Yeah. Yes. Like, could Go you ahead. say something about the team's leadership during the course of the war, from 41 to 45, how the team uh, registered, and if they had any influence on the conduct of military operations, in the war against fascism. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, yes, please. Yeah. This gentleman. Um, could you say a little bit about um, moving forward into Khrushchev and the team and, and the secret speech? You know, were, were the team involved? Were they worried about it? Let's, you, 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 let's have a third one, right? Yes, please. 
Um, so my question is about Stalin's paranoia and how it was something that definitely fueled his focus on security. Um, how founded do you think his paranoia was in the party and outside of the party? And how much of that do you think is just like a, psycholo- like a psychological um, problem with his approach? Mm-hmm. I feared this question. I was coming. Yes. Okay. Um, military operations, uh, first of all. Uh, in the war, uh, the team are, most of the team are mainly occupied on the non-military side. That is, they're running supply, they're running the railways, uh, they're running evacuation or whatever. They're, they're dealing with all of those aspects of, of the war, uh, that, whereas Stalin has, uh, is, uh, is the, main, uh, uh, the main person uh, in, in the team uh, dealing with the military leaders and in charge of uh, 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 and following the military operation. Now that said, there are slight. Uh, there, it, it has to be said that he met often with the military leaders with Molotov there, Molotov and other members of the leadership there. They, however, do not play. All the military leaders' reports uh, have them. Uh, basically sitting fairly quietly, so it is impossible to know what, if any, their input was there. Khrushchev, uh, who was uh, one of, uh, who was at the front uh, 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 for much of the war, he was closely involved uh, with, with the military leaders and the military effort. Uh, he, of course, had conflicts with Stalin uh, about, uh, on, on, on military strategy uh, mil- uh, at, at various points, which he, which he goes into at great length in his... Um, uh, in his, in his memoirs, I think uh, he is the only one uh, to have had that because I think he's the one with the closest... Uh, well, Beria had also close, quite close connection with, with the military operation, but I'm not, uh, as far as I know, there's no particular incident of conflict there. Um, secret speech team involvement. Um, it's, it's discussed beforehand in the Politburo, or rather, which is currently uh, go, uh, called, it was called at that time the Presidium, it is discussed. Uh, Mikoyan is as, as keen as Khrushchev is. On in, he's as much of an initiate, initiator, according to the Politburo protocols, as Khrushchev is. Uh, the, um, the, the, in the rest, everybody is going along. Everybody says, okay. Uh, but uh, there's a question of, of, of just exactly what is it you're going to do, you're going to criticise of Stalin? How wide ranging will the criticism go, uh, and and to what degree will it be on the one hand on the other hand? To what degree will it be balanced with, by statements of achievements? Uh, Molotov is, uh, says yes, we should criticise, uh, but uh, we should also make clear what what the achievements uh, were. Uh, so so, and, and, but it's a, fa- a fairly short report that we have, uh, and then we have a long account by Khrushchev and a, a slightly shorter account from Mikoyan and not too much from anybody else. So that, that's what we know about that. Um, Stalin's paranoia, how well-founded and, and how much, uh, uh, how much craze, you know, his own craziness. Now, it seems to me that he, it, uh, it's, it's paranoid tendency for sure he has. Uh, they, it, they appear to me to, to come and go and to be to some extent used by him. In other words, sometimes he lets himself be more paranoid than other times. Uh, so it's a, 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 the notion of a completely out-of-control paranoia I'm a bit sceptical uh, about. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't want to... I, I, 
I also, because the last years, you know, he really does seem to me to be going overboard on this Jewish question, and, um, you know, who knows that, that if he, uh, perhaps we're going to go into a full, full, full-scale paranoid uh, uh, episode. Uh, how well-founded... Uh, now, of course, uh, I mean, you, you can take this uh, from uh, various ways, and, and there are an awful lot that could be said about it. I just wanted to say one thing about, 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 the, uh, about the 20s, because it's in the 20s that people, that the team formed, including Stalin, their assumptions about how the world works. Uh, in the early 20s, there was an enormous amount of, 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 of spying in the way, and, and uh, in, in the, I mean, there were masses of spies from, uh, in, uh, as, uh, Uh, there's been some quite interesting work, uh, recent work on that and really most of the Westerners there including the journalists and so on were reporting to some intelligence agency or not now Stalin and the rest knew that and this uh, uh, to a degree I think they internalized that as the norm the other thing that really struck me as I was working on this in the latter part of the 20s there's there's a big discussion about whether Politburo minutes should be kept or whether it's too dangerous because they leak. And so sometimes they keep them and sometimes they don't, and then they finally stop and they try to put all sorts of restrictions on their circulation. But what interests me particularly is to see that they were leaking. They really were. If you look at Ryman's book on, uh, based on, the, on the, using the German archives, you see that the Germans had these, uh, these documents. They had a, an impressive... Re- uh, so that Ryman was able to write his book before the archives opened on the basis of what the Germans had got. Uh, the assumption in... Uh, Stalin thought it was leaking through... Um, uh, uh, basically, um, I think he thought it was going through uh, uh, oppositionists to Mensheviks and so on. But actually, some of Ryman's documents uh, were obtained by the embassy, the German embassy in Moscow. So somebody's leaking it to the German embassy, uh, and which selling is a very... Probably. Even selling, maybe? Or what? You know, I mean, I have no idea. But I, I, I introduce it simply as a... Uh, to say that not all the suspicions were totally unfounded and paranoid. Well, uh, on this note of uh, controlled craziness, I I suggest we we end this uh, excellent presentation and give another round of applause. (laughs)